Awesome. Good morning. My name is Brad. Excited to be hanging out with you guys this morning. Yeah. Woo! Clapping. Nice. Uh, a few summers ago, uh, there was a royal wedding. Uh, this wedding was really uh, popular. It was the most watched wedding of all time in all human history. More than when Princess Diana married Charles. Uh, more than when the, the other one, the older one, who's actually going to be king one day, when he married Kate. Uh, this, ma- this wedding between uh, Harry, handsome red-headed Harry, uh, and Meghan Merkel, our very own, like ours, uh, she was actually raised in the neighborhood that we live in, uh, like she's, she's ours, right, as Los Angeles people, right? Uh, when they got married uh, in England, it was this big deal. Uh, I was a good dad with my daughters, and we watched the live stream early in the morning. It was really cool. There was, uh, she had a beautiful dress, as all weddings do. There were really famous people there with cool hats. Uh, there, were, uh, there was a great, even gospel presentation by this Anglican priest uh, from South Carolina, of all places. There was a gospel choir singing. Uh, afterwards, there were parades and people cheering. And, and the very next day, uh, a journalist for a prominent uh, institution, I know we're skeptical now of the institution of media, but she was actually writing for a very prominent, respected international news outlet, wrote an opinion piece where the headline was, this wedding changes everything. She went on to describe how this this first uh, interracial marriage in the royal family was going to uh, appease and stop and cease all racial tensions in the world. That because she was famous and American, there was going to be this bridging of the gaps. Now, I was someone, honestly, who was like, what is Suits? Is that an actual TV show, so I don't know how famous she actually was, apart from being married, but still, she was very famous. I mean, Harry is one of the most famous children to ever grow up, and then served in the military, was a war hero, helicopter pilot in Afghanistan. I mean, you can't get better kind of like man than that, right? Like an actual Prince Charming hero. Uh, and so they thought, well, because they're so famous, this wedding was even one of, of power. She uh, walked down the aisle, not by herself, most of the way. And then Prince Charles walked her to the end. But, but even then, he didn't, no one gave her away. It was this wedding of, of powerful symbolism. And, and through the world watching it, we were going to somehow be different forever. Uh, except that same day, like the other articles on this site... Had a, one was about a shooting in Texas at a church. Another one was about nuclear war with North Korea and the rest of us. Uh, and it just felt like that article was flat. And I can imagine that even the people who read it, just like me, probably interpreted and thought, well, yeah, this is, uh, this is not true, but it's nice to kind of believe in that. That, that a wedding could change everything. That, that the symbolism of all of it could really uh, transformed the world. Uh, the, uh, several of the NASA uh, scientists who put a person on the moon way back when, I mean, it's still one of the most amazing feats uh, humans have ever accomplished. Uh, just 50 years after we discovered how to fly, we sent someone, a group of men, on a three-day journey to the moon and brought them back. Like, that's pretty phenomenal. And the, the uh, scientists afterwards wrote, and you can see this on a plaque at Griffith Observatory, Uh, This changes everything, they said. Landing on the moon changes everything. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, you know, they believe that through innovation and through science and progress that somehow all of the evils that they were experiencing in the 60s were somehow going to stop because we put a man on the moon, as Jim Carrey says, dumb and dumber. Uh, But it didn't work out. Did it? Like the 60s and the 2020s or whatever we're in now seem just so similar. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, LeBron James, as you all know, uh, he, along with Nike, collaborated to do this awesome social media campaign a few months ago where they took black and white photos of famous athletes as children and then wrote on it, 
uh, sports changes everything. And so there's this picture of LeBron as a child uh, without parents uh, in a living room on a Christmas day opening up some like really raggedy sneakers. And the, and the caption that he wrote on it was, this, this sports changes everything. Um, I wonder how you know, true that actually is, though. I mean, definitely sports has changed everything for, for LeBron James Sr. It's like been quite a transformation for him. Uh, then, just lastly, uh, on the, the very end of Obama's tenure as president, uh, in January 2017, he gave a farewell speech that all presidents have given since George Washington. And at that farewell speech, he uh, gathered all these famous people, his children, uh, all the people that had worked for him in Chicago, and he gave the speech, often as he, he did, you know, about optimism and transformation. But at the very end of the speech, he said, look, if, if, uh, if our country is going to change, you people have to change. This person who was in charge of, you know, our military and political power, uh, he won a Grammy, an Emmy, uh, he won uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, he, he was able to command drones to, you know, bomb anyone, anywhere. Like, he had that kind of power. And at the very end of it, after passing laws and putting people on the Supreme Court, he said, look, if anything's going to change, like, I can't do it. You people have to do it. You have to have some sort of transformation on the inside of your life. Uh, I think we longed for, and I'm a sucker for these, I always take pictures whenever I see a plaque somewhere that's, that promises to change everything. Uh, I was even one of those people that thought, man, if Obama becomes president, everything will change. Uh, young Brad, so naive. What we're going to see in the book of Mark, though, is that uh, not just the, the writer here, Mark, or John Mark, if you want to be like super specific. Not only does he believe that Jesus changes everything, and you'll see that over the next 16 chapters, it's just one big unified push of saying, Jesus himself, what, what has happened in this historical reality of Jesus being on earth has transformed everything and the whole world is different now. Not only does he believe that, but these people that he interacts with believe that, and the people that have read this gospel for centuries now, have come to the same uh, intense conclusion. That Jesus himself does something much different than politics ever could, or famous athletes, or science, or innovation. He somehow gets deep within the wounds and the brokenness of all of humanity and the universe itself and makes it new. Like that is the claim of this 16-chapter book. It also comes with this... uh, in your face, call to respond to that. In fact, you could sum up uh, what, what Mark outlines page after page is Jesus, who he is, his identity, the reality of him, what he's done, what he's taught, his death, his resurrection, all of that. Jesus is the main thing happening in every human's life. Whether you acknowledge him or not, whether you're doubting in him or not, or whether you, you know, full-fledged Jesus freak, you know, believe in him to the max, Jesus is the main story point of your entire life. Your whole life, every human ever, the sum of their life at the end is really just an answer to the question, what did you do with Jesus? That is what your life is about, according to the gospel of Mark. The historical claims that he makes about himself become the primary basis of your entire existence. Which is, I mean, I know, like saying those things sounds like quite, quite a thing, right? Uh, for us, if you believe and if you're saying, I want to follow Jesus my entire life, uh, it's not only is that the main thing happening, but but Jesus is the main course of action and decision-making uh, and belief in every part of your life. If you follow Jesus, you believe in Jesus, his kingdom, the stuff that he teaches is uh, just directly impacting who you are and how you live. That, that Jesus is God made flesh 
uh, changes everything for you. But I think uh, for us as Christians, we often just prefer uh, to have other people tell us about Jesus. You know, like uh, uh, publishing and Christian publishing is the only publishing sector or genre that's actually growing. Because we Christians love to read and purchase books that other people tell us this is what Jesus is like. Like, we're, we're that kind of people. Everywhere else, every other industry, every other genre, people are like, you know, I could listen to a podcast about this. I could watch a video about this. Who is buying books anymore? We Christians, we're the ones buying books still. And little tiny children. That's it. Because we want people to tell us about God. We want, we want to claim Jesus as our hope, but we want to rely on other people to transmit that to us. Even often as I sit and talk with people, I think we, we really want somebody else to make Jesus really clear to us so that the, their words and their understanding of Jesus can somehow make it okay for us to follow him as well. Some of us, I think, are afraid of him. Jesus is scary. Some of us are discouraged by Jesus. Some of us doubt in his ability to transform our very lives. Some of us uh, are just so distracted by the anxieties of the moment that we fail to see him also. Some of us prefer to quarantine or sterilize Jesus and admire him uh, from a distance. Uh, Award-winning novelist Barbara Kingsolver uh, summarizes, I think accidentally, because she's not a Christian, but she summarizes accidentally the message of, of Jesus and the purpose of Mark. She says, the very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right in it, under its roof. The very most you can do in life is live in the hope that you have. The very least thing that you can do is figure out what you hope for. And so that's what we want to do in this series of Mark. The very least is uh, understand what it is that we claim we hope in. The very most that I expect for us to do in this series is to walk, walk away living actually underneath the roof of our hope. Uh, Nietzsche, the, the famous uh, Christian philosopher, uh, just kidding, but he, he makes a statement uh, that Eugene Peterson co-ops and makes a very Christian profound statement that, that if any of this is true, and if you're someone who claims to believe uh, in Jesus, the very least you can do in life is walk along obedience in the same direction of day by day taking up Jesus to be the king of the world. If you believe at this at all, that's the least that you can do as someone who believes in Jesus. And so what we really want to do in this series is grapple with the actual identity and person of Jesus. Uh, hopefully that sounds good because we're going to do it for eight months. Because it's, it's a long book. You can't do the story of Jesus in an hour. Um, I'm really excited. Let me pray for us for just this whole time of learning, and then we'll, we'll jump into to today's passage. Uh, Jesus, we, we come before you, as I just said, some of us afraid, some of us excited, um, some of us having really never examined just your life and your daily steps before. Uh, I pray for us to be at least discovering and figuring out what it is that we hope for in life. Um, And I pray that we would come to see you as our living hope, our true, lasting hope. Um, I pray for us as a church to be renewed and to experience a a revival of, of just an awe of you and your name, Jesus. I pray that it would build within us a passion uh, just for for our lives, that we would see you at work in many, many different facets, uh, starting today and going on through 
through Easter when we get to read about your resurrection. Uh, Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Amen. The beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Mark is one of my favorite books, uh, probably my favorite. This actual one page is one of the most instrumental pages in my entire life. It's, it's even ripped. That's how awesome it is. I've ripped it uh, on accident and then taped it back together. But one of the things that I like about Mark is he starts with this assumption that everybody who ever comes to this book regardless of where they live or the times that they live in or the culture or the context or how rich they are, how poor they are, whoever comes to this book and reads it, he's assuming they're already going to know bad news. He assumes anyone who opens this and begins to read, they're going to start with the assumption uh, of this world is very messed up. Mark assumes that whoever reads it including us, will already know that we are living in hell. And we live in that. And he assumes that whoever is reading it comes to it with that perspective. The reason I think you can make that claim is he doesn't spend a lot of time describing uh, the need. He doesn't dive into, all right, let me show you Uh, six chapters on just how messed up your life is. No, he actually starts by saying, here's the beginning of of good news about Jesus. Mark assumes that we're all sitting around wondering, uh, is anyone going to come and rescue us? Can anything happen that will save my life? Um, There's a novel called What is the What?, uh, you may have heard me talk about it before, but it's central to my development as a person. Uh, but what is the what is the story of this guy, Valentino Ashok Deng, who was a boy in Sudan when it experienced a massive civil war. He watched his parents uh, be burned alive along with his sister uh, as, he, as he hid in a tree and watched his entire village be destroyed by rebels. And then he ran a month-long journey uh, through the wilderness, saw some, some of his other friends get eaten by alligators, a horrific story of this guy running for his life at just nine years old. He eventually crosses this river and finds himself uh, in one of the UN uh, refugee camps. And there he lives uh, until adulthood in this massive refugee camp. Uh, where he learned how to play pool and some other exciting things. But then the Western world discovered the reality of the lost boys of Sudan. And being uh, enlightened Westerners, we said, this is not okay. These boys have lost their entire lives. Uh, And that's when uh, those refugee children were sent uh, all over the Western world. Some to Germany, England, Canada, and way back then in the United States. Uh, and Valentino Ashak Deng arrives uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and some Lutherans take him in. Uh, they serve him. They prepare his a whole apartment. They give him a TV. They give him all of the things that you need to live in America. And he thinks, God has heard my cry, and here I am uh, in America, where everything is going to be good. And then uh, one day, there's a knock on the door. He opens it up. It's a gang. They push them down. They beat them up. They tie them to a metal chair. Uh, They throw them on the ground. He hits his head on the countertop and he begins to bleed. And he's laying there, tied up, watching them take away all of the things that the Lutherans had just given him. So his TVs, his stuff, all just leaves. And there he is, laying on the kitchen floor, bleeding. Wondering. Uh, He discovers that if he rocks his chair back and forth while he's on the ground, he can make a loud banging noise. And so he makes loud banging noise, expecting, well, now my neighbors will hear me and they'll come and they'll untie me and take me to the hospital. And so he does that for quite a while. Bang, bang, bang. 
Then he becomes really loud, and he thinks, well, surely the manager down the street or down the hallway will hear me and come, and, or maybe my neighbors will complain to her, and then fi- eventually someone will come and get me out of this. Bang, bang, bang. It goes on for hours. He thinks, well, now I'm so loud that they've got to be hearing me down at the street, and surely someone is wondering, what is this big noise that's happening? Bang, bang, bang. He does this continuously until eventually he gives this resignation statement that I think is the murmur beneath all of humanity, and he says, no one is coming. No one is coming. That that, that story is gripping because I think that that's the reality that most of us live in all the time. Nobody, nobody sees, nobody knows, nobody cares, and certainly nobody is coming into this situation. No one is coming to rescue. Mark assumes that's how we're all going to come to the story about Jesus. Later on in this chapter, uh, there are these very hopeful words. In verse 14 it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. These four words are remarkably hopeful. Jesus came into Galilee. Galilee is this forgotten place, a very insignificant place. Uh, Palestine, uh, where Israel was, was really just this big highway interchange for the world. It was just a middle ground. It was this pit stop that you had to go through. You know, it's like, uh, well, I just have to go that direction. Uh, It's like what we have over here when the 105 connects to the 405 and it's just a mess of roads and underneath it is just a bunch of trash and dirt. I don't know if you've ever been stuck in traffic and you just look at underneath these overpasses. It's just forgotten wasteland of creation, right? Am I the only one that sees that? That's what Palestine was. And Galilee was the most forgotten part of that area. And Jesus goes into it. This place with the language, this place with family, uh, struggles. It's just this earthly reality. Jesus came to that. Not to palaces or famous people or anything uh, remotely like what we would expect. Not with this big following. He just comes into this forgotten, neglected place. And to us, Jesus came into Galilee is offered as hope. The first hope in a really long story of human destruction. It's Mark's way of saying uh, the no one is coming motif is over. Jesus has come. He's come to us. The whole of Christianity can actually be bound into these words that Jesus came to us. He came to rescue. Rescue has arrived. Jesus came into Galilee is good news for everyone. The Son of God walked among us, willingly came, joyfully entered. It seems so just basic, right? Like it seems like words that we would just skip over. But Jesus came into a place, into a situation like the one you live in every day. It's also Mark's phrase for the incarnation. You know, Luke describes shepherds and angels and choirs. Matthew describes stars and wise men coming across the desert. Uh, John gets super philosophical, and it's like the Word was with God, and then God was the Word, and the Word was in the message, and the message is that, and then the Word became flesh. That's John's way of doing it. Uh, even the Apostle Paul gets into the, to the depths of this reality when he says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within him. Incarnation. C.S. Lewis says incarnation is the first miracle of, of the gospel. 
It's not resurrection. It's not uh, water being turned into wine. It's not a paralyzed person walking. It's God among us. In almost uh, Ernest Hemingway fashion, what Mark says is, he came into a town. He's arrived. He came with us. He came into us. Jesus walking in a neighborhood of neglect. And he came with the name. Names are pretty great. Uh, Mirel and I are, you know, educated, smart people. So when we had a daughter, Nora, before, you know, we spent months preparing to name her. You know, we bought books because that's what, you know, responsible parents do. You know, we weren't going to start her off in life, you know, down the wrong track. We were going to research this thing. We understood the nuances of names and meaning and the power of a name. And so we even had a whiteboard session when we created rules to take this 3,000 name book and make it just a couple of choices. Uh, we, we wanted it to be uh, Celtic because I love uh, St. Patrick. We wanted it to be able to be said the same in English and in Portuguese. And we wanted it, you know, obviously to mean something super powerful so that when people say, hey, what's your name? You can give like a long explanation, right? Like that's what you're supposed to do. And so we named her Nora, which means, you know, ray of light or compassion. And it can be said the same. And, and that's how we arrived at that really awesome name, right? Maite is just uh, Maria and Teresa squished together. And it means beloved. And it came, a, a, she came about uh, in a time in our marriage where that was something that we began to believe about ourselves, that we're the beloved ones and that we want her to know that she's the beloved one of God, a child of God. Truman is uh, pretty uh, simple and basic. We really liked the name. We heard it from other people. And then we thought, hey, let's call him Truman. Uh, and every time we say his name, it'll be like a prayer. Let him be a true man of God. Right? That sounds good. And now knowing him... It's like this desperate prayer of God, make him a true man of something. But that's how we named it. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find out that that Jesus' name just means, and is intentionally given, uh, not from a book, but from God himself, that he would be called Jesus, the Lord saves his people from sin. He has a name. Salvation, God, with a name. These, these little uh, letters and syllabus squished together come with meaning. And Jesus, I have to say, is one of the most uh, out-of-date, unpopular names, or even words to say, period. Like, Jesus makes sense if something bad happens. There's something about the syllables that are satisfying to say out loud. But to have a real conversation with this word at the middle of it uh, is, is not what we want to do. Jesus is completely out of style. I believe that it, it conjures up for us this claim that God was a man and a person who walked this earth. Jesus means all of that. But deeper, Jesus means we have a problem with sin and we're in need of saving. Even whenever we sing these songs where we proclaim the name of Jesus, what we're saying each time is, the Lord God Himself had to save me from sin. Sin is not uh, in fashion. It's not part of our daily vernacular. The idea that we're broken and wounded, that is very common. Uh, We like to talk about, especially as Angelinos, all of our hang-ups and our issues and our therapies and our diets and everything that's going to make us better. Like, we are in the self-improvement business just by living here, right? The idea that, that Jesus came for those who are sick and have been wounded and beat up and chewed up by this world, we all, like, that makes sense, right? But that Jesus came for my sins to save me from my sin, that is not as kosher. Because we know that that sin is not just some sort of trip or fall or mistake or miscommunication. We don't get to say, oh, I'm sorry, I miscommunicated that one time when I 
uh, completely rebelled against the living God and decided to harm other human beings. That was just a, just a miscommunication, God. It was just a mistake, a calendar issue that got mixed up. No, it's, it's an active abuse of who we were created to be. We were created to reflect the image of God and all of His compassion and justice and mercy. And instead, we did the exact opposite of those things. Out of selfishness and pride, we, we've, we've wounded and enacted our force on other people trying to subject them to our will. Sin happens uh, everywhere. At our dinner tables, at our workplaces, in our schools, and places far away. By the time you're two years old, you're already acquainted with the reality that those around you are sinners. And by the time that you're four, many counselors will attest, because if you ever go to counseling, they're going to want to talk about when you were four and what happened in your life. Because by that age, you've already been so wounded by sin that you yourself are, are an obsessive, compulsive sinner. Acting out in all of these ways. Born, breathing, living out sin. And it doesn't just simply it exist out there, it exists within us. We're familiar with the internal rage when we don't get what we want, we're, we're familiar with the manipulation that goes within us, the lying, the stealing, the cheating, the lusting, the abusing, the using of others for our own comfort or wills or passions or whatever it might be, the reducing of other humans to mere objects. This is what the Bible describes as sin, a rebellion against the living God and the creation that He uh, designed and built and constructed to just declare his incredible beauty and glory and what we've done with it and what we do to one another is destroy it. That is sin. However, in these four words, when it says Jesus came into Galilee, it's not just that God was incarnate and walked among us, but that God has come as our present and always Savior for sin the world finds its present reality of sin. He's a name with a purpose. God with a purpose. Not just for our state of oppression of sin, but for the entire cosmos. So what you see throughout the whole story leading up to the Gospel of Mark is that every part of human life, every part of earth, Every part of the cosmos itself is pervasively affected by sin, and Jesus comes to save it all from sin. And then he says stuff. He comes proclaiming the gospel of God. This word proclaiming means that this is what he was always talking about in every situation. Whatever he was doing, it was proclaiming this. This gospel of God. What we'll see throughout the rest of the chapters is the doing and the saying that Jesus does around the gospel of God. Always and forever proclaiming this thing, the gospel. Gospel is a stolen word from the, from the Greek society, from the Greek language. Back then it was just big, important news, breaking news, uh, like actual real breaking news. Uh, I know we've been uh, inundated with daily, hourly breaking news that doesn't change your life, but this was actual, like this was used for breaking news. Uh, the best example is when uh, the empire would be fighting a battle and fighting a war, uh, and the victory would be won, and the, the whole war would be over, and then they would send evangelists or messengers to each town. They would gather people up, and they would say, here is the gospel about our empire. Here's the good news. Our lives are different. The war is over. We now live in peace. This is what it means for your life. It was the news that would change the very fabric of a society because what was once at war is now at peace. That's the gospel. So Jesus, the thing that he's saying all the time is that kind of big news about God. The gospel of God. Not the 
the gospel about you or me or the good news about the church or the good news about the world or the good news about you know how you can be but it's good news about God of God for God I just think that we often believe that this whole Christian thing is about us. Like it's, this is for me. This is about me. I'm the central character. Like Jesus is just trying to become my, my best friend that will like elevate me and push me through life. Uh, even the, the principles that we talk through about how to live a disciple-making life just all becomes uh, a filter for us to think through how can we make our lives better. And Jesus is just coming to us, offering us good news so that we don't have to be terrible anymore or that we can be uh, less anxious or more productive, that sort of thing. But what Jesus comes talking about is not good news about you, but good news about the very nature of God. It's all about His glory, His power, His majesty to fill the entire earth. It's about His purpose, His passion, His desires in every human heart, His desire for the world that He created. It's good news about God, not good news about you. And this is what He says. This is the substance of it. This is what He was saying all the time. He says, The time is fulfilled. Pretty hopeful words. Waiting is over. The story has reached its climax. The prophets had been saying someone was going to come. Even in the, the, the books that, that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch, there's the claim that someone is going to come to defeat the serpent and to put everything right. From the life of Abraham, we know that the whole world will be blessed through this family. From the the story of David, we know eventually someone's going to come and sit on the throne and they're going to make everything right. Jesus says that time is now. The waiting is over. The time is complete. Time is up. This is that moment where, where God has done something and is doing something. And then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What's he doing? What, what is this uh, climax moment of human history? It's that the kingdom of God is at hand. This kingdom is it's so close. Like you could touch it. It's like within arm's reach. The kingdom of God has entered into this world. Like what is the kingdom? It's where God's rule and reign is uncontested where God gets everything that He wants, always. Within the kingdom of God, there isn't a question about who is good, who is right, who is wonderful. It's known. Within the kingdom of God, there's not a question of, will there be mercy? There is mercy. Within the kingdom of God, there's not questions of, is there love? It's known. There is love. It's a kingdom where it's all orbiting around the very nature of God and His compassion, His grace, and His power. And he is not uh, up for re-election in that kingdom. He's getting exactly what he wants. It's the world as it always intended to be. It's peace. And he says, that kingdom is so close, you can touch it. This is the good news. That all uh, reshaping and renewing of the world has come in his kingdom. He also describes the kingdom of God uh, uh, not just at hand so close that you can touch it, but also as if the hand of God is reaching into this world. The, the psalmist regularly wrote about how the arm of God is not too short to save. Painting a picture of God reaching into this world to redeem it. And Jesus is saying, of course, that hand is now in this world. It's not so much that the kingdom of God is so close that we can touch it, but that the, that the hand of God is on earth reaching out into us, interrupting our lives, interrupting the human arc of history, the hands that will one day be pierced. He's saying to us, that kingdom is here at hand 
through my own life. The kingdom has arrived, and it's life, and it's good, and it's conquering this world. A world shaped by sin. A world that produces uh, death. Sin is the, the vict- or death is the victory of sin. It's, it's human life as it was unintended to be. It's the most unnatural thing in the world to stand at a funeral or to look at a plaque in the ground and say, that used to be human life. Death is that victory that sin always wins. And Jesus, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, is that death will be conquered. Or evil itself. The whole culmination of this whole world of sin committed against each other. Death that fills every part of our human existence. And then just the the whole uh, rampant spread of that is evil. Or as Augustine called, the absence of good. Uh, Or as uh, I think Kendrick Lamar puts it well, uh, when he says, Every day I try to escape the realities of this world. That this world is one full of evil that must be conquered. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, I've come to make this world new. So close you can touch it, reaching out into this world. And this is the substance of the good news. That Jesus has entered the mess, entered Galilee, entered the world, entered the neighborhood, to defeat sin and death and evil through his own life, through his own death, through his own resurrection. And he's going to make all things new. He's going to dive into the depths of the human condition and he's going to make it new. He's going to confront all of the, the effects of sin on the world and he's going to make it new. He's going to dive into the very fabric and structures of the world and he's going to defeat them and put them underneath his feet as Paul writes. That is the kingdom of God at hand. And then he ends by saying, all that's true, now you have to respond. How will you respond to this good news? He says there is only one way to respond and it's repentance and belief. Repentance and belief in the gospel. Uh, And while repentance is totally out of style linguistically, uh, it's very much in style daily life. Uh, Repentance means that you alter uh, your mind or you change your mind about what you think is best or what you can hope in or what's going to solve a problem. That's repentance. To change your mind about what's best. We do that all the time. All the time. You go to the doctor. They take blood pressure and like whatever. They poke you with things. Then afterwards, the doctor says, hey, you know what would be best is if you didn't eat as many donuts. And then you say, you know what? I'm going to change my life. I thought donuts was the best way to live. Now it's been changed. Donuts is not the best way to live. The abstinence of donuts is what's really good. That's repentance. We do that all the time. Man, the very best car you could ever have is a Toyota. Then you drive one for a while and you're like, you know what? I've changed my mind. The very best thing you could ever drive is a Tesla. That's repentance. Like you've changed your whole mind. Or even maybe more clearly, you're a child or you're a high school student. You have this dream of a career or an impact you can make on the whole world. And so you pursue it without, uh, with everything that you have. You go to the schools. You, you conjure up the debt. You get into the workforce. You do all the right internships. You grow your career. And then you find out this career stinks. It's not fulfilling. My boss is a jerk. The people around me, the pay that they give me, this whole system is messed up. And then you change your mind about what's best in life. Either you say, I'm going to go start a whole new career. Or you say, you know what? Career, it is what it is. Now what I'm going to say is the best life is having the best you know, relationships I could possibly have. Or having the best children. And you just change your mind. Repentance is always part of our lives. 
What Jesus is saying, though, is comprehensively more. He's saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, change your mind about what you think is going to change the world. We change our mind about, it's not going to be famous people. It's not going to be rich people. It's not going to be politically savvy people. It's not going to be awards that people win, or TV special weddings, or uh, it's not going to be putting people on the moon. That's not going to change the world. We change our mind about that. But it's so much deeper because he says it's also about belief. Changing not just what we think would be best, but a belief of Jesus as the one hope for all ills, the one hope for every aspect of our lives. To respond to the stretched out arm of the Savior who has a name that means salvation, you change what you believe about who you are, about who God is, about what He's doing, you see your world transformed by it, you believe, you trust in Him. Not just a, hey, these other things don't work, we're all, we all understand that, that these other things don't work. But to have a lasting confidence that Jesus is the one hope that transforms not just my life, but the entire world. That the time is fulfilled, that the time is now, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It requires two simultaneous responses, that we drop everything that we hope in, all the other hopes, And we've developed strong portfolios, diverse portfolios of hopes. And we cash that in and we say there's only one hope. And we believe that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, and the kingdom that he's in charge of is the good news about God. We repent and we believe. I think belief is one of our fundamental struggles today. I think that uh, what Jesus challenges us with is not just a, a mental assent, but an actual deep conviction. I think many of us operate as functional atheists. Uh, we would say, you know, Jesus is God and there is a God, but the way we live our lives is as if no one cares about us, no one is coming to rescue, we have to do it all ourselves. And we spend most of our time like thinking through the problems that we can solve and the ways that we can fix it because nobody else is going to come and fix it. We're functional atheists. And to that, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news about God in charge. Some of us are functional agnostics. We're like, well, yeah, I believe that God is real and God is out there. But he's not knowable, and he doesn't know me. Yes, he exists. Maybe he does good things for other people. But for me in my life, I can't know him, and he can't know me. To that, Jesus says, I'm here, I know you, I'm in this earth, I'm in this world. I've made myself clearly known. Believe. Some of us are functional deists. I mean, that is like the religion of our country. That God established a world, set it all up, gave us a manual, we follow the instructions, uh, everything will be fine. We messed up a few times, so now the world's broken, but let's go look through the manual, and if we follow it correctly, we can fix it. Like, that's what we believe. It's fundamental, like, we, on our own, can fix this thing. But God is not present. He's not involved. He's abandoned us. Jesus arrives integral to life over death. He's not offering suggestions or advice or a new way, but he's saying, I am the way and I am the solution. He's embodying all that's required to restore a broken world. And he says, believe in my personhood to save the world. And some of us live passively with doubt. You know, there's just some vague things that we're just not sure about. And we just kind of let it go to the background. It's a back burner kind of thing. 
To that, Jesus says, come inspect my life. All of these different beliefs that we have um, send us into a world where we're trying to just secure something else, find something else, be something else. And whether you put yourself in a bunch of religious activities or you just put yourself in a bunch of things to numb the pain or get distracted by it, all along, Jesus is arriving in your world saying the kingdom of God is here. It's so close. It's reaching into your life. Repent and believe. Going back to Barbara King Solver, if you remember... She said, the very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside of it. Not admire it from a distance, but live right in it under its roof. That is the challenge that Jesus offers throughout the Gospel of Mark. Over and over again, he's going to be proclaiming the Gospel of God, either through his actions or through his actual words. And he's going to be saying over and over again, the time is now, it's complete, the kingdom of God is here. Will you live in that hope? Will you admire it? Will you live with inside of the reality of my kingdom? Or will you not? And that's what your life is all about. And that's what Mark is all about as well. Can you live within the hope of Jesus and his kingdom? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, yeah, we pray for your name to be known in our hearts and in our lives. We pray for yeah, your name to be cherished. We pray for humility in our own lives to acknowledge uh, the brokenness within us. I pray for us to experience uh, repentance and belief together. Not just saying that what we don't like doesn't work, but beholding you as the one true hope. Jesus, I pray for us to live, live knowing the hope. I pray for us to not just live out a functional atheistic life, but that we would uh, live our life daily underneath your care your provision, the reality of you being with us. Jesus, we thank you for all that you're doing in our souls, in our lives, in our world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.